Good morning. Over the last eight years of Beverly Gaventa's tenure as professor of New Testament at Princeton Seminary, she and I taught a course together called Paul and Carl. It was designed to ask the question, how well does Bart's exegesis stand up to close scrutiny when studied closely in the light of Paul and of contemporary Pauline studies? And so each week, I would give a lecture on Bart's Romans, and Beverly would speak of Paul's Romans and provide her own assessment of Bart. I pitched, she hit home runs. <laughs> the consequence is that I will never be, again be able to think of Bart's Romans, or Paul's for that matter, without also immediately thinking of Beverly. It came about this way. We found ourselves seated opposite to each other at a CTI luncheon, and our conversation turned to Carl Bart. Beverly told me she read through the prefaces to Bart's Romans once a year just to remind herself what her task was. I was greatly surprised by this and said, whether then or later doesn't matter, we should teach a course. So what is it about those prefaces? Well, they clearly show that Bart is not a Gnostic. He did believe, of course, that God must be present and active if genuine understanding of Paul's Zaka is to be achieved. But it is not as though he did not also believe that the, it is not as though that he also, it is not as though he believed that the exegete is a passive recipient of news flashes from above. The work she does is of the greatest importance. The first step is historical work, which Bart said is only a preparation for real understanding, so we must move beyond it. Real understanding happens when the exegete struggles to understand each part of an epistle in the light of the whole, and the whole in the light of each part. When she strives with every sinew to catch sight of the true subject matter witnessed to in the text, and now begins to witness to the same subject matter, with Paul, alongside of Paul. I say subject matter, but the subject matter for Paul is the divine subject who makes himself object to our knowing in the complex event of cross and resurrection, and only finally there. All of this Beverly knew and understood. The exegete, like Paul, is a witness to an event. Beverly knows that whatever Paul speaks of, he speaks as a witness to the cross and resurrection. But a witness can only succeed where that which is spoken of gives itself again to be known by readers. Exegesis is a very fragile enterprise, obviously. It is an enterprise open to mistakes and even to failure. At the end of the day, all of our exegesis can only be justified, if at all, by the grace of God through faith. The witness does not control her subject matter. She gives herself to be controlled by her subject matter. She is not a master, but a servant. All of this I learned from Karl Barth. All of this I saw practiced on a weekly basis by Beverly. For the last six years, Beverly has been a distinguished research pre professor at Baylor University. I miss her. 
But in her shoes, I would have done the same thing. Some offers can't be refused. Her recent works are in your biographies for, the, uh, for you to read there. Beverly, welcome back. I love being able to say that. Welcome back to Princeton. Please come and share your thoughts on Romans and the Romer Brief. First word is thank you to Bruce for that gracious and very generous introduction. Um, and thank you to Phil and to Kate for inviting me. Uh, this is a rich conversation, and I'm delighted to be part of it. Uh, Bruce has stolen my introduction, which has to do with the class that we taught together. In the early sessions of that course, as Bruce McCormick put the commentary in its intellectual and historical context, and I placed it in its exegetical context, we both commented on the mixed reception the rumor brief received by the theological establishment. At some point in those lectures, McCormick ventured the judgment that exegetes found the commentary frustrating because, like a recalcitrant mathematics student, Bart refused to demonstrate his homework. Elsewhere in print, he has said, the homework remains behind the scenes. I think he is correct on this point. A close examination of the commentary reveals that Bart had read his predecessors. What he did not do was display that reading. Nor did he engage the commentators themselves, the commentaries themselves. His interest lay with the content of Romans rather than with the commentary tradition. Yet I have come to think that the offense given by the commentary is larger and more important than Bart's failure or I think stubborn unwillingness to show his homework. Late in the preface to the second edition, as Bart turns from defending his method of interpretation to the text of Romans itself, he writes this. Paulinism has always stood on the brink of heresy. This being so, it is strange how utterly harmless and unexceptionable most commentaries on the epistle to the Romans are and most books about Paul are. Let me read that again. I have read it uh, rather often. Paulinism has always stood on the brink of heresy. It is strange how utterly harmless and unexceptionable most commentaries and most books about Paul are. You have to have tried to write a book about Paul in order to get the brunt of that. In the century since the publication of Bart's commentary, the various prefaces have attracted attention and generated considerable debate. Yet the lines I just read have, to the best of my knowledge, largely escaped sustained attention. In my view, the real scandal, the real provocation of Bart's commentary is connected to this statement this claim that Bart, that Paul is always on the brink 
of heresy. The problem for many readers of the commentary is not only that, that Bart did not play by the rules of the exegetical establishment. The problem is that he was willing to peer over the brink alongside Paul, that he drew attention to the content of Romans in ways that were and are deeply disturbing. Perhaps chief among the disturbances created by P Bart's reading of Romans is his treatment of Romans 9 through 11, to which I will turn in a few moments. Now, the claim that Bart attends to Paul on the brink could carry with it, could carry us in a number of directions. But one possibility is surely the frequent characterization of Bart's commentary as apocalyptic in its orientation. Bart himself does not specify the nature of the brink he sees in Paul's letters. But readers of Bart, at least some readers of Bart, do associate him with apocalyptic thinking. Walt Lowe, for example, writes that Bart's Romer brief throbs with apocalyptic urgency. Douglas Herrick opens an essay on Bart and Romans 9 through 11 with a statement that no reader can work more than a few pages into Bart's commentary without being immediately arrested by the apocalyptic tone of the book. Now, specifications, uh, sorry, such declarations call out for specification of the term apocalyptic, an endeavor that quickly lands us in a dense scholarly tangle. Greatly oversimplifying, I will for the moment observe that there are at least two broad approaches to understanding apocalyptic at work in contemporary biblical scholarship. Some biblical scholars tie their understanding of apocalyptic or apocalypticism closely to a particular set of features in a limited number of early Jewish texts. According to John Collins' often adduced description, apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporary insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. By this definition, for example, the book of Daniel, 1st Enoch, and 4th Ezra are apocalypses, works that resemble them or conform to their perspective may be regarded as apocalyptic or reflective of an apocalyptic outlook. Others may not. This is clearly a literary approach. For another group of scholars, however, apocalyptic is not confined to those literary features or to a particular genre. Martinez de Boer describes apocalypse as the expectation of God's own visible eschatological activity. Where the term is not confined to a genre, but encompasses also, 
quote, visible divine movement and activity on a cosmic scale. On this understanding, apocalypse is used of what Samuel Adams describes as an actual happening in history that is, to whatever degree, revelatory. Now, this distinction between apocalypse and, as literary phenomenon and apocalypse as revelatory event is only a starting point, and a number of you know it is a crude one at that. But it allows me to, an observe, to observe an interesting anomaly in Barth's commentary. Paul's letter to the Romans contains a number of passages readily identified as apocalyptic in the narrow sense. At numerous points in Romans, Paul's text includes apocalyptic literary forms. Yet several of the most obvious candidates for that label apocalyptic receive little or no treatment in Barth's commentary. Neither does he single them out for discussion. I first noticed this pattern in Barth's commentary at the end of his treatment of Romans 8. There Paul asks a series of questions that pit God's being for us with the possibility of anyone or anything, uh, any other thesis, Paul says, any critter, being against us. The questions culminate with the affirmation that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul parades a set of circumstances and agents who might aim to separate humanity from its Lord, including angels and rulers and powers, agents who are larger than human life. The passage makes little sense unless Paul himself is convinced that there actually are agents who contest God's power. Interestingly, to me at least, Bart passes over these culminating verses with the briefest of reference. To be sure, in his discussion of hope in 8, 18 to 25, he famously declares, as has already been cited at least once here, that Christianity without thoroughgoing eschatology has no relationship whatever with Christ. But his focus is on the invisibility of God's action rather than on the future triumph of God. Another example comes in 1125. As Paul's tortured discussion of the relationship between Paul, between God and Israel, I have my agents confused this morning. God, Paul, and Bart, you know, <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> Not just you forgive me, but I hope God forgives me. Um, as Paul is, exam is concluding his discussion of the relationship between God and Israel, Paul writes, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, about this mystery. Mysterion is widely acknowledged as an apocalyptic term, one that is used for disclosing divinely revealed information. Yet, Bart glosses it as paradox, comparing it with the paradoxical claim of 2 Thessalonians that it is the man of sin who restrains the day of the Lord, 
or the paradoxical union of Christ and the church evoked in Ephesians 5. Now, to be sure, this assessment of Musterion reflects scholarly work on early Jewish texts that was not available to Bart so far as I know. So assessing him on this point is a bit anachronistic. More surprising to me at least was Bart's treatment of 1620, which is perhaps the most straightforwardly apocalyptic statement in the letter. Paul affirms the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. Satan requires defeat in Paul's view and that defeat cannot come about through the agency of the audience. God will have to release them from Satan's grasp. Ironically, this concluding pronouncement sits very nicely alongside some of the agonistic language in Bart's commentary. Starting with his claim early on that the gospel is the victory by which the world is overcome. But Bart passes over the reference to Satan entirely, writing only about the unexpected character of God's action. So by the standards of those for whom apocalyptic is associated solely with literary features belonging to a particular genre, this may not be an apocalyptic commentary. Of course, when Douglas Herring describes the rumor brief as apocalyptic, he is not referring to such literary features. He is instead proposing a theological outlook that has more in common with the understanding of Adams and De Boer I noted earlier, apocalyptic as revelatory event. Working with this somewhat more capacious understanding, Herrick specifically identifies the tone of the letter as apocalyptic. He cites initially Bart's comments on Romans 1, 16 and 17, which I just read. The gospel is the victory by which the world is overcome. By the gospel, the whole concrete world is dissolved and established. He also cites uh, Bart on the Nuni De of 321. But now, Bart writes, directs our attention to time which is beyond time, to space which has no locality, to impossible possibility, to the gospel of transformation, to the imminent coming of the kingdom of God, to affirmation in negation, to salvation in the world, to acquittal in condemnation, to eternity in time, to life in death. As Herring notes, these lines are followed, lest we miss the point, by a quotation from the apocalypse itself. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then the emphatic declaration, this is the word of God. What makes Bart's commentary apocalyptic, Herring observes, is his discovery that, quote, God invades a world in bondage to the powers of sin and death, irresistibly interrupts, claims, and seizes that world, renders it judged and redeemed a new creation. 
In this sense, Herrick finds Bart's dialectic performance of Paul's apocalyptic gospel to be a faithful one. But Herrick becomes wary when he arrives at Bart's reading of Romans 9 through 11, where, as you all know, Bart reads Israel, but writes church. Here, Herrick might say that Bart has not gone to the brink with Paul, but has pulled Paul over the brink into heresy. Specifically, in Herrick's view, Bart has neglected the central concern of Romans, which is that the people of Israel, Paul's kindred according to the flesh, is one of God's good creatures, close quote. Crucial to Romans for Herring is the distinctiveness of Israel, its difference being created according to God's will. And that distinctiveness is not destroyed as it is in Bart's reading, but it is judged and delivered. Herring's ob observations are especially helpful because on this point he is representative of many other voices. He echoes a great deal of contemporary scholarship on Romans, which focuses on the place of Israel and on ethnic difference. His particular way of framing the issue is that Bart misunderstands Pauline apocalyptic, that Bart's dialecticism has triumphed over Paul's text. This characterization, however, raises for me the question, is it possible to have Bart's emphasis on God in Romans 1 through 8 without his treatment of Romans 9 through 11? I contend that the two are deeply connected and that even with its serious flaws, Bart's treatment of Romans 9 through 11 has a contribution to make to our understanding of Paul. Now, I turn to Romans 9 through 11 by way of exploring this issue. As a reminder, Romans 9 through 11 takes up explicitly the relationship between God and Israel. Paul's long exploration of the effects of the Christ event culminates in chapter 8, with the claim that the whole of creation waits together, longs together for God's redemption. As I noted just a few moments ago, the final lines of chapter eight call out enemies of God's people who might attempt to separate them from God, promising in extravagant language that nothing will separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. Although the second half of chapter 8 is routinely identified as eschatological, in my judgment at least, something is missing here. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul anticipates the victorious return of Jesus and the ultimate triumph of God over all God's enemies. No such culminating scene appears in Romans 8. There is longing for redemption, there is reassurance, but there is no anticipation of God's actual triumph in Jesus. 
In other words, the culmination of God's victory is postponed. We may find the reason for that silence in chapters 9 through 11, where the question might be put this way, what is the eschatological victory without Israel? Or better, what is Israel's place in the eschatological victory of God? For this reason, I think, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul turns to consider a possible separation between God and Israel. As Paul puts it, Israel has tripped over the stone of stumbling, the stone that God alone put in place. That stone of stumbling is nothing other than Jesus Christ himself. Israel, or at least a portion of Israel, does not recognize Jesus of Nazareth as its Messiah. The question then is, what does this stumbling mean for Israel? What does it mean for God? What is the eschatological standing of Israel? Paul treats this challenge uh, beginning with a short and rather peculiar recital of the history of Israel in chapter 9, in which the emphasis lies entirely on God's creative and sustaining work. The central section, chapter 10, unpacks the irony. Israel has pursued righteousness, has run after it, but has lost the race. The Gentiles have never entered the race, but they nevertheless arrived at righteousness. One of Paul's happier images for those of us who are not athletic. Here, Paul writes of Israel as a single entity in chapter 10, ultimately leading to the characterization of Israel as disobedient, as rejecting God's embrace. Final, the final section opens with the provocative question, does Israel stumble mean that God has abandoned Israel? Paul rejects the question out of hand. At present, Israel is divided, but that division serves to make a place for Gentile inclusion. And the outcome will be, as 1126 announces the mystery, all Israel will be saved. That brief and necessarily inadequate summary of Romans 9 through 11 serves at least to demonstrate how extraordinary it is to open Bart's commentary at Romans 9 and find this. And now, he writes, in contrast with the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is thrust upon our attention Israel, the church, the world of religion as it appears in history. A few lines further down, he writes, the church confronts the gospel as the last human possibility confronts the impossible possibility of God. Consistently through this long section, Bart writes of the church where Paul writes of Israel. 
He does not identify some segment of Israel as belonging with the church, nor does he claim that the church is a spiritual version of Israel. He does not explain his move at all beyond the connection I just quoted, Israel, the church, the world of religion. This move is made more unusual by the fact that nowhere in Romans 9 through 11 does Paul refer explicitly to the church. The term ecclesia only appears in Romans in the closing lines of the letter as Paul greets the church or the gathering in various houses. Now, let me be clear, lest you start to worry about me. <clears throat> Bart's treatment of Romans 9 through 11 violates the plain sense of the text. Further, it is dangerous in that it opens the door for supersessionism. In our time, given the rampant resurgence of anti-Judaism, this bears repeating. Nonetheless, what I hope to show is that what Bart does with church and Israel in 9 through 11 is coherent with Paul's letter and has something important to teach us, even in its errors. Now, I should note, because uh, a number of you will already be thinking, well, Bart writes about 9 through 11 in the dogmatics as well and modifies what he says. Here, I am treating, I'm confining myself entirely to the commentary. Sufficient to the hour is the text thereof. <laughs> now, for some years, I regarded Bart's treatment of 9 through 11 as an act of pastoral cunning designed precisely to shock the reader. He wrote for an audience that it was largely, if not entirely, Christian, or at least historically related to Christian tradition. And most readers of the commentary over the last century have presumably also been Christian. Few of those readers will have been unaware, at least in a general sense, that the topic of Romans 9 through 11 is the relationship between God and Israel. We know what's coming. Most of Bart's readers then come with an awareness of 9 through 11. They, we, begin reading Romans 9 through 11 aligned with the gospel, at least so we imagine, and looking out at Israel. The preposition there is deliberate and important. We look at Israel. We take the pathos of the early lines of Romans 9 to reflect the fact that Paul himself is not only en Christo, located in the body of Christ, he is also part of Israel, as he insists in 9.3 and reiterates in 11.1. Romans 9 finds Paul occupying two places at once as he stands with the gospel as doulos Christu. He looks at his kinfolk, Israel, with longing. And Israel is, quote unquote, the problem. A contemporary variation on this reading has it that the problem is God. The question is whether God is faithful 
Yet on that reading, Paul is still looking from the position of the church with the gospel toward Israel, toward God's dealings with Israel. And Israel becomes, this is the important word, the other. For readers steeped in this understanding of Romans 9 through 11, encountering Bart's treatment, I think, is stunning. Those of us who are aligned with the church see church rather than Israel. We may, for the first time, sense the depth of Paul's grief. But this is more than pathos. The reader is now reading about herself, about her church, about her faithlessness, rather than that of someone else. Criticism of Israel falls on the church. In this way, Bart's exegesis forces a reckoning with any and all forms of Christian arrogance. I suspect this was Bart's intent. In at least one instance, Bart had a reader whose reaction seems to reinforce my suspicion although scarcely with the results Bart would have wished. I have in mind his early reviewer, New Testament scholar Adolf Ulicker, who was critical of Bart's treatment of Romans 9 through 11 on this point. Ulicker's critique, however, runs directly counter to what we would expect. Ulicker rejects the identification of the church with Israel because of its implied criticism of the church. To Ulicker, speaking of the church, where Paul spoke of Israel, is a problem because it identifies Israel's failings as those of the church. And Bart's exegesis thereby taints the church. That's my word, not Ulicker's. Ulicker complains that this move shows not even, quote, a limited respect for what the gospel has accomplished. Bart's criticism of the church emerges again in the final lines of the review, where Ulicker characterizes Bart as despising the past and confidently announces that, quote, the church Christendom religion will not perish. Now, by the way, such criticism of the first edition of the commentary evidently did not persuade, dissuade Bart. The second edition reinforces this stunning exegetical move by introducing changed uh, headings for chapters 9 through 11 that reinforce the identification of the subject matter as the church. For example, where the heading of chapter 9 in the first edition is simply the tribulation, in the second edition, the heading of chapter 9 is the tribulation of the church. Chapter 10 becomes the guilt of the church, and chapter 11, the hope of the church. Take that, Professor Ulicker. So it may be that Bart's reading of church for Israel has a pastoral, or better, a prophetic function. There is more to be said, however. 
Bart's treatment of Romans 9 through 11 is not only a clever rhetorical move intended to catch out Christian readers in their arrogance, it actually coheres with the letter itself in some important ways. In the first place, Bart's interpretive move in Romans 9 through 11 resembles some of Paul's own unsettling exegetical moves. A couple of examples will have to suffice. In Romans 10, following his enigmatic declaration that Christ is the telos of the law, Paul embarks on a complicated exegetical discussion that leads him to Deuteronomy 30, 11, concerning the nearness of the commandment that Israel obey God's law. This commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. But when Paul calls on this passage, it is not the commandment that is near, but Jesus himself. Do not say who will go up into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ out from the dead. Continuing, Christ, uh, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, 14. This word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. In the context of Deuteronomy, of course, that word is God's command. Paul, however, elides any reference to the commandment, adding, that is, the word of faith, which we proclaim. In other words, as Francis Watson puts it, where Deuteronomy speaks of the doing of the commandment, Paul rewrites it so that it will speak of Christ and faith. Paul has ignored the plain sense of the text, and shockingly so, replacing the Mosaic commandment with Christ in order to show that it is now Christ whose nearness matters. A similar interpretive move, and one closer to Bart's own, occurs in the middle of Romans 9. Having established that God brought Israel into being of God's own will and for God's purposes, Paul takes up the new creation of God, the us God called into being, made up not only of Jews, but also of Gentiles. Then he introduces words of Hosea. I will call not my people, my people, and not my beloved, beloved. And then the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons and daughters of the living God. In its context, this passage unmistakably refers to God's call of Israel as a people. Now, however, in Paul's retelling, it is made to speak of God's calling of Gentiles. Gentiles have become my people, my beloved. Now, we may appreciate Bart's move to undermine Christian arrogance. I'm always in favor of that, starting with me. And his imitation, however unconscious it is, of Paul's exegetical method. 
and still insist that Bart's reading is problematic for its erasure of difference as he replaces Israel with church. Here I will linger because this is the most fraught of the questions. To begin with, it seems to me that Bart had to do this based on his own interpretation of Romans 1 to 8. Crucial to Bart's commentary, I need scarcely recall for this group, is the conviction of an absolute difference between God and humanity. That conviction, which places humans on one side of a line and God on the other, that conviction could cohere with a reading of the letter that distinguishes between people groups. From the opening lines of the letter, Paul speaks of Greeks and barbarians, of Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised. He distinguishes remaining in sin from being baptized into Christ. Late in the letter, he will acknowledge that there are those who continue to observe kosher law and those who believe they are free to eat anything. Bart's reading of the letter, however, constantly undermines those differences. Humanity is united as one in the presence of God, who is the only other. Bart is especially concerned to locate religious people firmly on one side, the human side, of the vast difference that separates God from humanity. In a dramatic paragraph introducing his treatment of Romans 2, Bart asks, to whom is the wrath of God revealed? A series of questions parades the possibility that there are humans who might be exempt from the wrath of God, that there are certain people or certain historic contexts that remain innocent of God's judgment. In response, when Bart takes up Paul's charge that you are without excuse, he writes that even those who know God also belong to the world of time. There is no human righteousness by which men can escape the wrath of God. No one is exempt. There are no saints in the midst of a company of sinners. On Bart's reading, Abraham himself is no exception to this human unity. Abraham's faith is a miracle, not an act of his own volition. When it comes to Paul's introduction of election at the end of chapter 8, the first thing Bart does is to reject any attempt to divide humanity into elect and non-elect. We are forbidden, he writes, to give a quantitative answer to this question. Of particular note and worth recalling for, for ourselves, Bart places, delights in places Christian theologians themselves squarely with the rest of humanity on the all-too-human side of the line, remote from God. Those devoted to God's law become sinners, including, he writes, the clergy and their friends, the doctors of the theological faculty, those active in social reform, and those who publish books, such as the one I am now writing. 
Having written in this way through Romans 1 through 8, it should not be surprising that when he turns to Romans 9, 1, Bart writes, there is no opportunity given us whereby we are in the right and others in the wrong. For God's own point of view is strictly protected against every human point of view. He is righteous and we are all unrighteous. Isolating Israel as distinctive in its resistance to the gospel would undermine the foundation of Bart's understanding of the letter. So when it comes to Romans 9 through 11, Bart cannot, I think, suddenly read Paul as judging one human group among others. But there's more. Not too much more. Not only is Bart's radical move consistent with his own argument, at a deep level, it is coherent with the letter Paul wrote. As I observed a moment ago, time and again in the letter, Paul appears to draw lines between human groups. But he then goes on to erase or undermine those same lines. At the outset of the letter, he writes that the gospel's power is for the Jew first, and also the Greek, both introducing ethnic difference and prioritizing Jews. That difference seems to be underscored in the second half of the letter, as Paul parades of the first chapter, excuse me, the second half of the first chapter, as Paul parades conventional Jewish stereotypes about idolatry and sexual immorality attached to Gentiles by way of announcing that God's wrath on human obedient, disobedience is being apocalypsed alongside the gospel. Yet the parading of Gentile sin is followed in chapter 2 by a dense argument that undermines the notion that Jews are in fact removed from rebellion against God that characterizes Gentile life. All, Paul concludes in 3.9, both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin. There is no difference, he writes in 3.22 and 23, for all sinned and thereby all are deprived of the glory of God. By introducing Abraham in Romans 4, Paul might be reintroducing Jewish difference, but it is notable, at least to me, that he identifies Abraham as the father of the uncircumcised before he introduces him as the father of the circumcised. The syncresis of Adam and Christ in Romans 5 proceeds without any distinction between Jew and Gentile. All humanity is implicated in Adam's disobedience, and all humanity is taken up in Christ's act of obedience. More could be said by way of unpacking that point, but this will have to suffice for the moment. When Bart refuses to distinguish among human beings, placing all humanity on one side of a line that separates God from humanity, he is in touch with a deep chord 
that runs through Romans 1 to 8. Bart may be borrowing his formulation from Kierkegaard, but the conviction is Paul's. Further, Bart's radical reading of Romans 9 through 11 oddly coheres with some of the major issues in that treatment, of that section of the letter. Paul's concern throughout this long passage is to demonstrate or to recall for his audience that God created Israel and will not be separated from what Paul tellingly refers to in 11.1 as God's people. What happens to Israel is, from the beginning, a function of God's activity. God created Israel. God caused Israel to stumble. God has divided Israel. God will not vacate the promises to Israel. It is not at all hard to imagine that Paul would make similar claims about the church. What shall we say then? Has Bart erased Israel? to say nothing of Paul's, of Israel's eschatological future? Has Bart gone over the brink into the heresy of supersessionism, dragging Paul with him? In Romans 9 through 11, Paul writes about God's dealings with Israel, by which he means a particular historic people. Although the letter addresses assemblies of Christians in Rome, churches, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is not writing about God's dealings with the church itself. In this sense, Bart's treatment of Romans 9 through 11 is simply wrong on historical grounds. It ignores the plain sense of the text. In our context, again, as anti-Judaism rears its monstrous head, it is necessary to say this in the plainest possible terms. This is a troubling move. Nevertheless, this radical interpretive error does reflect major issues in Paul's letter. For Paul, the event of the gospel discloses that all humanity without exception, is captive to the power of sin and its toxic partner, death. For Paul, one implication of this disclosure is the exclusion of any and all forms of human arrogance. If all humanity was in Adam and all humanity is now in Christ, no human may make a claim of any sort in God's presence. What does all humanity mean about Israel? Isn't Israel distinctive? This is the point which Herring, at which Herring criticizes Bart. For Herring, who again I take as a representative of many interpreters of Paul on this point, Bart has failed to understand that differentiations among people are original, that's his word, in the sense that they are created according to God's will. Distinctions among people groups are not destroyed, but redeemed. But where is Israel's distinctiveness to be found? Does it inhere in Israel such that in and of itself, Israel possesses difference? 
I think not, at least not for Paul, nor for Bart. Israel's distinctiveness lies in God's actions on its behalf, God's calling into being a child for Abraham and Sarah, God's promise that, as Paul insists, has no end. In other words, Israel's distinctiveness lies in God rather than with Israel. Consistent with that understanding, Bart observes that Moses and Pharaoh both stand, quote, humanly under the harshness of God. From this point of view, Moses and Pharaoh are interchangeable. Now, this response will be deeply uh, unsatisfying for some, given that, our, that one of the chief preoccupations of our era is with identifying and ratifying difference. It is an uncomfortable conclusion to propose in the year 2019, particularly as a privileged white American. It runs the risk of being heard as a plea for sameness, a plea to suppress difference in any and all of its forms. That is not my intent. And I think such a plea would trip over both Paul's argument and Bart's reading of it. For Paul, humanity's commonality is a commonality in captivity to sin and death, which is made visible only by a commonality in redemption through God's action in Jesus Christ. That commonality does not produce uniformity in human life, a point underscored in Paul's treatment of the variety of spiritual gifts in just a few chapters. Earlier, I suggested that the absence in Romans 8 of a depiction of Jesus' triumphant parousia reflects Paul's unwillingness to imagine the final triumph of God apart from God's relationship to Israel. While Bart's treatment of Romans 9 through 11 does little to address this particular question directly, he does provide a strong hint when he comes to 1129. At 1129, Paul writes, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. After citing that line, and before adding another word of his own, Bart quotes three earlier lines of Romans, producing his own katina. First, 3.3, three. if some were faithless, does their faithlessness destroy the faithfulness of God? Then 9.6a, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then 11.2, God has not rejected God's people. God's creation of Israel and determination to sustain Israel, all Israel, has no end. On this topic and on others, I suggest that we attend closely to Paul's concluding words in 9 through 11. Not 11.26 or even 11.32, dear as they are to my heart, but the actual conclusion in verses 33 to 36. Who has known the Lord's mind? Who has become God's counselor? Thank you very much.